0: Hello, I'm Paige and this is the Euro Intelligence podcast covering current affairs in the EU and Eurozone. I'm joined by Wolfgang and Susanna, directors of Eurointelligence in Oxford. This week felt a bit like the calm before the storm. Rule of law drama is ramping up while Brexit inertia continues to exasperate. Let's start with Hungary and Poland. The EU has come up with a new proposal to exclude Hungary and Poland from the Recovery Fund. Wolfgang, why is this mechanism different from enhanced cooperation?
1: These methods are technically and legally different the european commission is looking at various technical options they all have their advantages and drawbacks the first thing when we talked them we were sort of among the first to propose enhanced cooperation because that's the mechanism that exists it was created for the eurozone or at least it was created in its current form for the eurozone in the lisbon treaty it came originally in the 1990s in the amsterdam treaty but it was had a much more limited scope then and that was for us the natural Thing, But it had disadvantages because if you read this procedure in detail, you'll find that uh, you cannot exclude a member state. So Hungary and Poland could technically join it and boycott it from inside. So you have to find a way to prevent that from happening. Now, there is a method to do so. The European Commission can exclude a member state, but it has to have a a reason. There's an appeals procedure, it has to go to the council. So it's a classic EU backwards and forwards type of thing. And it's not going to be quick. And there may be legal challenges, like anything can be challenged in the CGA eu So you could, in the end, has face serious delays. That is indeed a, a shortcoming. Uh, I'm also reading that the European Commission has doubts that it can actually have a eurobond or a budget inside the enhanced cooperation procedure, that it was not designed to that effect. Now, I'm surprised to read that because I always assume that the member states could pretty much do what they like, <laughs> as long as they don't interfere with the single market or other primary EU-level policies, but the court has not yet decided on that. That's one of these many questions where the ECJ uh, could could ultimately provide some uh, guidance to the EU on what is the scope for enhanced cooperation and what, what it can and what it cannot do. What we are reading in the German paper FAZ is that the commission is considering the same legal mechanism through which it launched the short-time work Reinsurance mechanism uh, in the spring, this was the first kind of pandemic response by the EU when they agreed a kind of an unemployment reinsurance fund. This was not general unemployment. This was basically for the kind of very short time unemployment. The funds to some countries like Germany have short time work schemes, others like Portugal don't. So for them, the idea of of having a short time work scheme was was an absolutely brilliant idea and it produced some robustness in the face of the crisis. And the legal basis that was used for that fund is now being discussed at least as a possibly preferred option for the um for taking the entire next generation eu package, which is the whole seven hundred fifty billion package of grants and loans into that fund now, I'm wondering, and i obviously this is always a question of whether these things are just you know said by somebody or whether this is an actual thing at this stage, uh, people will obviously need to make formal legal view of whether that is possible. If the argument is that enhanced cooperation isn't designed for that purpose, then surely at least the question is, is this thing also designed for that purpose? And in the end, they'll have to take a legal view. There may also be legal challenges by Hungary and Poland to that. But it is the idea, I suspect, is to scare them. Uh, the idea is to say, okay, we are willing politically to go without you. We'll find a way. And, you know, if you if you maintain your veto, then we will do that. Um, I think that is the more important message than the actual technical legal basis of whatever instrument is chosen. Uh, they have agreed, and I think that's that's right at this stage. Not to go the intergovernmental route. Uh, that that was an option that we too considered back in the spring when we uh, advocated a coalition of the willing. We advocated it because we, we we believed it would be the quicker way. As it turned out to be, it would have been the quicker way because this the, the recovery fund as it is constituted now will probably not become active and pay any money for quite some time, an intergovernmental route back in the spring would have provided a much faster crisis response.
2: And at least the sure mechanism does assure quick and fast payments, as Antonio Costa was actually tweeting the other day saying, thank you for all the money we received which is actually to his point to say uh, one of the problems is that we are hamstrung with the, all these conditionalities and haggling over the budget would mean that we are facing delays in the payouts. And this is really the one that matters most to these regions that are actually struggling to finance and uh, their recovery.
1: That makes complete sense. And I, I would think that this is also the reason why the commission is considering that. So there's something definitely to watch out for. We haven't got the details that haven't said so publicly. It's not something that is being discussed in the open. We haven't seen any legal views on that expressed. So, you know, that's something we're going to watch out for in the discussions next week. And given that Poland and Hungary have made such a fuss about their veto and they've formed a joint alliance, will they together climb down uh, at the the summit?
0: Well, that's the question, right? Because you're already seeing in the news, I think Poland's deputy premier was saying the country might be prepared for a compromise uh, provided... I think essentially that the EU makes a statement promising never to use this rule of law mechanism. So do you see cracks appearing in this facade of unity for these two?
1: I'm sure that Merkel would probably support that too. Um, That's a classic EU compromise, you know, passing a law and then making a solemn declaration not to use it.
2: (laughs) It only lasts for her for her own term. Once she's out of office, yeah. and I guarantee that, right?
1: No, that's right. You can never guarantee. The council cannot bind future councils like the parliaments. You cannot say we will never use it, and that is true only for as long as you don't use it. So it's it's a bit like getting Boris Johnson to say that he complies with international law, which is true until he doesn't. And it's <laughs> it's uh it's you know it's it's something that the Hungarians would be quite skeptical of. The polls have different issues now. The polls don't have the Kind of rule of law issues that Orban has. Um, Orban has a r- rule of law issue that deals with him and his family and his associates siphoning of money from the EU, as is, people suspect he does. Uh, now, that would mean that he would really want this mechanism killed rather than having a declaration only to restrict it to the abuse of EU funds, because in Hungary, that is actually the problem. Uh, now they're changing the constitution to make it harder for the EU. To uh, to claim that these funds are actually public, they they're making a different definition of what constitutes public funds, with the sole purpose of um, making it harder for the EU to trigger a rule of law mechanism. Um, so they might just get get this done in time for this mechanism not to be you know applied effectively because they won't have a legal basis to do so. So you know I would assume there are various types of compromise possible, but uh, without the EU. Willing to go uh, an, uh, through an, on an alternative way, um, I think this is this is something uh, uh, heavily fraught. I'm also not sure. I would not take it for granted that the European Council would pass a, uh, such a declaration, um, because you know Merkel would probably you know sign up to anything. I don't think she has she cares greatly about this mechanism. The German presidency's original proposal was so weakened. Um, it was designed with a view to compromise. It was not designed with a view to uphold them, to get the maximum out of it. It's not nothing for her. The unity of the EU has a much, much higher priority for her than this mechanism. So, so you know, she'll sign up to this. Uh, Macron, I don't know, uh, but Rutter, three months before his election, now he is leading in the polls. He's doing well. He can pretty much afford to do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, you know, knowing Rutter, I'm not. I'm not sure that he would simply sign up to a declaration not to use the agreed rule of law mechanism. Um, the, uh, the European Parliament will will be seriously angry um, if if such a declaration were given. Uh, It's nothing they can do about it, because it doesn't change the actual mechanism. The European Council is free to declare what it likes. And any rule of law action would have to go through the European Council. It needs to to be approved by a, a qualified majority. So this is a potentially serious, serious thing. It would look bad. It would look like the EU caving into Poland and Hungary. It would certainly be interpreted by some, uh, even though Hungary and Poland would have dropped their veto in the end. Now we are in a situation where, if there is a deal, both sides will look like they have caved in, <laughs> uh, and and in, you know it would be better, in my view, now really for the EU to go ahead with it rather than to, in, uh, unless Poland and Hungary really drop their veto yeah. uh, to go ahead with this procedure. Uh, irrespective of any any diplomacy, but that won't happen. Merkel will try hard in the six days she has to actually get a deal and and persuade as many other prime ministers of the of the of the value of a compromise.
2: Could they not have a sort of a combination like uh, a secret agreement that is not official? on the same time, that Poland and Hungary just put up the white flag saying, okay, the circumstances have changed given the options that we're facing now, we are considering of withdrawing our veto. So it would allow them all to have a face-saving uh, exit strategy um, while at the same time assure Auburn and his uh, family's uh, <laughs> a continuation uh, at least that there will be no Application of the rule of law in this matter. Yeah, I think if you
1: just do the maths on the qualified majority, it would take Germany, Poland, Hungary, Portugal, and Spain. That's enough to block a qualified majority, because you would have three large countries. A qualified majority in under EU law is the you know has a dual component. One is defined on the on the majority of member states, and one is in respect of the population. And uh, these five countries uh, would constitute what you might call a qualifying minority. And I, in other words, a blocking minority. And uh, and all, all Germany, all Merkel would need to do. This is kind of an emergency thing for her, is to give Orbán and Morawiecki uh, the assurance that uh, there will never be a, a majority uh, for a rule of law mechanism. And uh, Hungary and Poland would get private assurances from yeah. the leaders of, say, Germany and two other countries. It's not a big, I mean, Germany alone can't swing it, but, um, but Poland is a large country and Germany is a large country. So that's two large countries. So, you know, together that's 140 million, um, 120 million people. Uh, and I think they, are, on my math, they need about 150 million people, governments representing 150 million people to block something. You add 10 for uh, 10 million for Hungary. We're doing very rough math. Obviously, the the numbers are not as round as I t- suggest. But that's 130 million. So you need you need countries accounting for about 20 million people. Um, you know, Portugal is less than, obviously less than that, so it needs another country. Spain would easily get us over the or get them. Over the over the, <laughs> over the thing, so I think this is something that Merkel will probably try, but but Orbán has already made it very clear that this is not you know he's, oh, I mean the the Polish Hungarian statement the joint statement that they the two of them made uh, suggests that they want to that they really want to block the mechanism as it is uh, rather than sort of open themselves up to. A procedure that they have no control. And as Susanna was just saying, you know, Merkel is leaving. Who knows who her successor is? Yeah, so it's probably not, it's probably, it doesn't look like it's going to be Armin Laschet, the, the Prime Minister of Northern Australia. His, his campaign has been absolutely awful. And now he's been sort of engrossed <laughs> in the scandal, uh, and the graft scandal. So, so it looks increasingly less likely that Germany will have him than the other, there are three other possibilities. Uh, you Norbert know, Rutken, um, and Friedrich Merz and Markus Söder, they are fairly unpredictable in terms of what they will do. Rutkin will probably not uh, be open to a foul compromise over Orban. Uh, Söder might. Uh, Friedrich Merz is completely unpredictable. So it's something that a strategically calculating Orban knows that he cannot take German support for granted in the run-up to his own election, which isn't until 22. Uh, And by that time, the the next German chancellor will be firmly in place. Another consideration is the division inside the rule of justice party in Poland. Uh, The deputy prime minister clearly seeks compromise. That was clearly from his tone. He these these words he chose were, were reasonable, were, were measured, very European in in approach. And um, and you know most of the parties are not one, you know, they're Kaczynski and um, you know, Kaczynski is the driving force of that party and he is uh, a, a radical Euroskeptic. And Morawiecki is in his, you know, is his is is part of his group the deputy prime minister has a, is from a different wing of the party it doesn't mean that this is the polish position it's not clear that he speaks that he spoke for the government that he actually tried to signal a change or whether he was basically just you know he had talks with the eu and he probably got frightened by the idea of some some of poland being excluded from the recovery fund i would at this stage not not Infer from that that Poland has changed its position. And in any case, Orbán and Morawiecki agreed to to coordinate their approach. So it, 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 they would have to do this together. Otherwise, the Polish Hungarian alliance would not would not last, and that would be a, a potentially, you know, a, a, there is no reason why the two countries would would give this up, but it is possible that the threat of uh, isolation
2: might, you know, might make them nervous. That is, wouldn't completely rule that out. It could uh, at least uh, through the Polish position, uh, shake up the whole debate and also then bring that into the alliance with Hungary. And then the Hungarians and the Polish have to come together to a new position. And in this process of finding a new compromise, that would open up a new plane, right?
1: Absolutely, another exactly, and they, they, I mean, if you if you were a strategic calculator, you could say, I mean, the best way to deal with it is to split Poland and Hungary, get Poland on your side, and then you have a complete freedom to uh, hunt down Orban, uh, because uh, he would then be isolated in the in the European Council if Poland was no longer a an ally. Um, And uh, in that case, even a classic Article 7 procedure might at one point succeed, uh, uh, which uh, it hasn't because Poland and Hungary actually uh, prevented uh, that proceeding because they they supported each other. Um, And that would obviously end if Poland ever elected another government or Hungary elected another government, uh, which will happen at one point. Orban is quite possibly going to succeed to turn his country into a one party state uh, the opposition is too weak the 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 laws the media have been uh, essentially all government controlled uh, or influenced um, this country is you know as timothy gardnesh was saying to us in, a, in 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 our last podcast um, this country is a non democracy now while he didn't think he didn't classify poland in the same category for him, it is a it's a it's a weakened democracy, but not a non-democracy. There is the opposition in Poland is still alive, so Poland there is more hope, uh, uh, also more hope of a reasonable discourse. Um, but you know we have seen you know that there's no guarantee of that happening, and and this you know is it may well happen that Poland and Hungary react to the EU's suggestion of an um, enhanced cooperation as a provocation and maybe even as an ex- excuse to start a Brexit or poll exit or Hunger hung exit, made, <laughs> uh, whatever we call it. I actually prefer to call it Brexit uh, <laughs> as, a, as a generic term for any, any of these things. <laughs> Let them all suffer from that name. Um, uh, that is something I, you know, we, we we can't completely rule out that that this would happen. Um, but at this time, I think it's probably fair to say that the outcome is fairly open. We should not conclude that, yeah, there's always a compromise in the end. Yeah, there, there can be, but this is, even Merkel was saying, this is unusually difficult. When mm-hmm. she talked about, you know, squaring the circle. She doesn't usually use expressions like that. She's usually much more pragmatic and, and, and not prone to metaphoric language. Uh, she seemed quite desperate uh, and despairing in terms of the, you know, she said, it is impossible to square this because, because here yeah, the whole mechanism is designed to have a go at Orban.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: you can't, you know, seek a compromise by, by not using the mechanism. This is not a compromise. Uh, it's a <laughs> So that's that's what makes it so difficult. There isn't sort of, it's very hard to see what a gray area or a gray area means, um, because this is unfortunately one of those few binary things that we, we see in EU politics.
0: It will definitely be something to watch out for next week. It seems like this EU leaders summit might be, one of the most important in recent history. Uh, And from here, I'll just turn the conversation to more foul compromises and dirty deals and, of course, Brexit. I was just reading on Twitter before we started this call that France is saying it will veto any deal with the UK if it is against French national interests. Who does Boris Johnson need to speak with right now, von der Leyen or Macron?
1: At the moment, I mean, he will speak with von der Leyen. He will possibly talk to Macron as well if, if there is, in the end, a thing on fish, on quotas. <laughs> uh, and the number is, you know, the UK says 60% of the quota being returned to the UK. And mm.
0: the
1: EU says, no, we only give you 15%, which is, I think, the EU's position. And they agree on 40% or some some other number, something in between. Um, you know, I find it very hard to keep an enthusiasm for this question myself. Uh, uh, whether it's you know whatever the fish quota is, but but um, for the UK, this is an, an a matter not of economics but of principle. Uh, the the bond for for Johnson, this is the way he 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 approaches this thing. I think in terms of the substance, he couldn't care less about fish or even competition policy. This is not substantive. This is about the appearance of sovereignty, not even sovereignty, but the appearance of sovereignty. And, you know, there is a potential danger of things going wrong here. And uh, the French veto threat is um, not helpful. It's, uh, you know, I don't take it very seriously because I cannot see Barnier and Johnson reaching a, a deal that is vetoed by France. Uh, then obviously everybody would blame France for eter- in, in in eternity. It would be the worst possible outcome because it would mean that France would have vetoed a deal. Um, uh, it would have meant that any people who you know a hard Brexit could cause to serious disruption. In in theory, it could cause a loss of life if that's for example it's a disruption of medical supplies or or other things you know i mean if you are trapped in a 200 mile jam in a motorway you might get a heart attack and you know whoever vetoes this deal would have to basically uh explain why they did this um so this would you know it's it, it to me this sounds like they they threatened this uh, to scare the british and also to drum up support in at home um, it's not a you know i don't take it seriously as um you know it's not a piece of new I, I would not consider this a piece of new information um what we know is that talks talks went on uh, this week they, they did some made some progress uh, there was a setback yesterday um when the, as the british claim the uh, eu introduced some new language on the level playing field on the on the state as state eight um and, uh, and and in fact new language on the principles not even on the mechanism so that's also telling us they are not even agreed the principles
0: mm, so the good. mechanism
1: was i thought was the mechanism was the complicated thing the language on the principles you know could have, could have should have been settled a long time ago so that tells us they're not as close to a deal as people think and um and they, at the moment they have red lines, and they will have both have to jump over these red lines if they want to get a deal. And if the EU believes that only Johnson uh, has to jump, and if Johnson believes only the EU has will jump, then there is no deal. And it's also possible that they agree and make a tentative agreement where, for example, Johnson says, okay, we'll we'll agree to this if you agree to this. And the thing goes back to the EU and then internally the EU says, but we can't. And then Macron, this is where the bigger danger comes, that Macron, it's not that he vetoes it, but that he basically plucks the deal apart. And uh, and then the UK, then the whole thing returns and the UK says, no, this is not acceptable to us. And then there is no deal by simply by there being not a deal. Nobody will walk out. So the veto is, the, is a very unlikely option. Um, It would suggest that Barnier is happy and France isn't, and that, you know, Barnier is very careful to avoid that possibility. I mean, he's been he's been traveling to and from Brussels uh, to brief ambassadors. Uh, The French ambassador clearly represents his country's interests. He's himself argued that uh, it would be better for the two sides to end the discussions now and to resume discussions next week. So the French taking a very, very hard line in those debates. That's known. So if there is any agreement, I find it inconceivable that this would be an agreement without the tacit approval of France so that the situation that this veto thing that that will in practice never arise. And it it may even be a signal to Barnier saying don't go too far. And some ambassadors have suggested that Barnier in its eagerness to get a deal, may have sacrificed a few of the EU's own red lines, which is understandable because that's the condition for a deal. Both, I mean, these, these are extremely tough negotiations. And the biggest danger, as we always said, was one side believing it can, it has an imp- implicit advantage. Uh, and it's 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 it's, it's um um, that was probably the biggest misconception on the EU side that the UK is so desperate it would take anything. You know, we know now, and you know, we've known this pretty much for as long that is not the case. They will not take anything. And I you know for once, I believe Johnson when he says that uh, you know he would prefer a deal to no deal, but uh, not at any cost. And I think that is very much his mindset. I think he's quite clear about his own red lines, what he what he's ready to accept. But I don't think he is. Uh, willing, you know, he's willing to go the extra mile, but he's not, he's not, um, you know, not, not much more.
0: Yeah. Well, what are we to make? Uh, this is a question for Susanna, but what should we make of France's hardline position? Are there any domestic pressures that might be informing this? Like how is Macron doing at home right now?
2: Well, I don't really know what the impact of fish is on non popularity, um, I haven't seen that, but um, I saw just today that uh, the polls suggest that his popularity is down again, although through the second world, uh, second lockdown he actually did fa- fairly well in the polls. Now it's hard to read anything in these polls anyway, but I do think that France has a difficult well he has a he has a crisis or a looming crisis in his hands with the government. Uh, his uh, interior minister. He's giving him a little bit of a hard time. He is sort of, uh, with his security law, uh, yeah. which includes Article 24. It's an article that actually says that any images or any dissemination of images that uh, portray the police in action with the intention of doing harm are to be banned and there is a prison sentence and uh, a huge fee I think 45,000 or something like that Oof. if they were finding them so the whole left wing of his party went up in arms against it and um, his interior minister didn't help his whole communications was kind of awkward so this uh, <laughs> led in the end to uh, he had to mobilize his party in the assembly to suggest that they withdraw this controversy article. Uh, the problem with that is that it opens or it's linked to another article in another law, which is the um, secular uh, the separatism law. It was intended to reign in the uh, radicalism. And now it's opening Pandora's box on this law too. There it was actually aftermath after uh, the teacher Samuel Paty was uh, yeah. killed and... Um, it was meant to stop um, sharing information on social media that, with the intention to harm, because that was actually what happened uh, for Patti. But mm-hmm. before his murder, uh, this this debate was actually inciting uh, the murder to come and, and
0: kill him. Yeah. To me, that article makes a lot more sense though, right? Because it's about civil servants it just, uh, it seems exactly. like the exactly. security just yeah. kind of took that and was like, oh, let's apply it to the police too, but then we'll just <laughs> use it to kind of prevent anyone from publishing.
2: Exactly. And that's the idea of actually, can we fold the whole thing in into the separatism law, um, which is much less discriminatory and it's not separating the police out, but actually meant as a and do no harm uh, clause that protects all civil servants from this
0: including teachers and police. Exactly. Well, I think that's something we'll be watching out for in January, right? I think you wrote that that's when the Senate is going to be looking at both of these laws, and when any potential rewrite of Article 24 would be wrapped up by then.
2: Uh, the, the security law will be in the Senate, uh, but the separatism law will start in the Assembly. Uh, okay. That's, that's, so the two could actually
0: do the back and forth on that. Oh, fantastic. So let's start the year off with <laughs> more happy legislative proceedings. Um, yeah, the final topic that I had on my list of things that were happening this week was the transatlantic reset that the European Commission is going for right now. Uh, Wolfgang, you were critical of it because it seemed like the EU didn't have much to offer the US um, as an incentive to join, you know, to cooperate more on things like the digital economy or maybe taxation of the big tech giants. Um, I was writing that, you know, China is the one area of common ground where maybe the EU could align itself more to the US position as a way to kind of enhance cooperation and improve the relations. Do you think that if the EU took a harder position on China, this would help it um, with some of its other transatlantic reset proposals, like cooperation in the digital sphere? Or do you see this becoming kind of another uh, fizzle?
1: Yeah, I think the, the, the response of the U.S. is fairly confused about <laughs> what it wants. They, I mean, they're all happy that Biden won the election and everybody's saying so, but that doesn't you know replace um, a strategy. The first thing the EU needs to decide whether it really wants to join uh, American-China policy. Mm. Uh, it's not clear. Um, you know, I don't want to even. You know, I'm I'm in my in two minds about it myself. Uh, whether this the eu should the EU should simply uh, align with the us against china whether the eu should take that that role uh, unlike the us you know we share a continent with china on the, the mm. you know and and it's something so, you know that makes a, a difference china has we have much closer trading relation we have actually land uh, land links with china yeah. uh, so this is a different a different um, a different proposition china has made it's very big investments in some eu countries um so one 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 you know i'm i'm not saying that we should you know tie up with china against the united states or that we should try to you know find a middle role but the eu at this moment is not clear on its strategy towards china yeah. which is uh, evidence in the relatively unclear position on 5g mm-hmm. uh, like the, the typical case is germany having uh, uh, no decision on who are why, but a, a rule where various agencies get involved and make make reports.
0: Yeah.
1: That basically <laughs> means that, you know, they That's can like- pretty much change the policy anytime. And, and, you know, a security agency will always do what the government tells it to do.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: they're not they're not independent so in the end this is uh, you know we have retained a degree of discretion in that policy uh, which is what the EU what the US has asked us not to do um so yes I agree with your initial observation. the EU should when it looks at a strategic relationship with the United States it should also consider what it can offer and at the moment the EU offers the you know regulatory power which is you know something it has. Uh, I think the EU overestimates it, in the, especially in the digital era, because the attempt to, to regulate digital, uh, the digital economy is fraught with danger, as you have yourself written about uh-huh. the Digital God. Services Act. And it's um, it's an illusion that the EU can pretty much constrain or constrain uh, the, the next generation of digital technologies like artificial mm-hmm. intelligence, uh, which raises serious issues for data protection. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the EU's power in that respect is not as strong as it may think it is. Um, The EU has no champions in that area, no Mm -hmm. digital companies. Uh, It has digital consumers, and that is probably its biggest asset. Mm -hmm. Um, It has laws that it can pass uh, on competition and taxes. Um, That indeed is a power that the EU has. But, But if you formulate a strategy, you don't start by with whom you do it you start (laughs) what the strategy is and then you look at partners with whom you want to implement it and it may well be that you want to implement that strategy with the united states Um, but uh, you know one has to be very clear about what the strategy is and who knows in four years the next u.s elections might bring up a very different government Mm -hmm. uh you know who for we know donald trump might return or another republican President might return, and <laughs> the EU would be depressed again because you know it's its favorite, you know the EU the EU, and this is the problem with the transatlantic attitudes in the in the EU. It is not a relationship with the US. It's you know the only people the EU has relationships with the, is the Democrats, and any Democratic president. Um, it, it's a very partisan uh, transatlantic relationship, which the US, in fairness, never did. The US never. Said we only have uh, relationships with 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 the, the Tories and not with Labour, or with the CDU and not with the SPD. They they, t- they certainly did not express preferences in a systemic way. In general, they were more comfortable with with the centre right than the centre left. But they had good relationships with some of the center left governments like Tony Blair uh, or Helmut Schmidt back in the 1970s. Um, uh, th- this is not, it's not, it's not as clear and partisan. The EU has made, I think, made that mistake of being being a very partisan influence or very partisan player in the in the in the US or non player as, as it really is in the US debate. And it will make it harder for the EU to actually form a strategic relationship so the better view, in my view, is to to look at the issues and co-opt the U.S. in some of them. Um, And I think it will be difficult to do this in climate change, where the issue is not Biden, but Congress, uh, whether Congress has the majority to pass the laws uh, necessary to reduce CO2 emissions. That's not clear at all. We don't know what the outcome of this Georgia uh, Senate elections is in, in early January. So that will, you know, that will depend. Um, but i'm you know we've been observing eu foreign policy if, uh, discussion for a long time and it 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 always had it had a sort of a sense of immaturity to it um it was never a it was never a, uh, a a strategic as a say american foreign policy was where they basically took their long term goals uh, of what they wanted to achieve and then find ways of achieving it and even use economic tools to do so uh, we never did that.
2: But how can they? I mean, they're always a junior partner. They're sort of the ball in between the big powers. And uh, it's really hard. It, it, it is the child-parent child kind of relationship here. And depending on the interests of the parents, the child has to choose whether or not it's copying or it's it's declaring its independence of it.
1: Well, children grow up and uh, <laughs> that never happens here. <laughs> the, 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 U, I mean, the U is big. The U has 500 million people. Uh, they could. They could at one point say, "Look, I mean, they have some consumer powers. They have some technological powers. They could. They could certainly keep out." You know, uh, I mean, I would probably start with not not running a trade surplus with the rest of the world, which is what makes me weak, uh, because once you have a trade surplus, uh, is uh, you're vulnerable to trade 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 policy sanctions, as we're seeing, and it's the, the easiest way to to split the U.S. through trade. Uh, as is happening with Russian gas and uh, you know German car exports to China yeah. and all
2: that, and I agree. I think we do have to have more strategic debates, and uh, we're sort of lacking. I mean, I only observe it when it comes to Turkey how much of a lack of uh, strategic debate we have, and uh, which makes us prone to this reaction mode. That we are reacting to U.S. politics, reacting to Turkey, but we actually are. Always at risk of spiraling out of our uh, principled approach or what we are standing up for, and the only way of reining it in is actually to to have a strategy or to discuss it and really what it means operationally, what it means in terms of our our, our values. Um, and there, I agree with you. There is really a debate lacking.
1: Yeah, Turkey is a really important issue. I mean, we, the Turkey policy of Germany is informed of fear, fear that. Erdogan whips up the Turkish community in Germany. Fear of, uh, I'm sure, German exports to Turkey play a role too. Um, so Germany has a um, Germany in particular uh, finds it hard to impose sanctions. On Merkel is very reluctant to impose sanctions on anyone um, um, except Russia. But then again, she imposes sanctions on Russia and then does a deal with Putin on, <laughs> on, on Nord Stream too. So one has to be, one has to, um, you know. You know the, the the weakness of the EU stems from the fact that in all the strategic questions, the member states pursue their own national thing. The Germans do that, the French do that too, um, and it's it's um, um, and that's you know that's the ultimate thing. So that if you if you are look, talking about strategy, that's the issue you need to address. Uh, and uh, all this talk about transatlantic relationship, I think is 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 completely irrelevant.
0: Yeah. Well, I'll uh, end it on one final question for both of you, then. How long after next week's summit do you think it will take Turkey to send its ship back out to explore the Mediterranean? <laughs> well... Um... I don't I have no clue really. Uh, it's really I'm saying expensive. eight hours, eight hours max.
2: Yeah, I think last time it was it was eight hours, wasn't it? Yeah. But the message this time was a bit different. The me- last time it was already the message that they are only there for repair, for repair or sort of for refilling. Uh, this time, the message seems to suggest that this is more of a long term. Uh, that they're not actually planning of sending it out again. At least that's not implicitly um, suggested. But it, it, it only means that you know, in terms of signaling, they're becoming a little bit they're upping up their game. It doesn't mean that they're upping up their game and delivering anything else. Mm. Uh, it's just another strategy. And uh, while the Greeks are hopeful, I know they're still lobbying very strongly within the EU Council that this time the uh, the member states won't fall for this trick uh, we but we also see that even if the french are drawing up a list of sanctions of potential, potential sanctions that are to be concluded next or, or agreed upon next week it's not clear which sanctions and i think <clears throat> you can divide that the division line is not necessarily now uh, whether sanctions or not but what sort of sanctions and i think we are we are again in the same game
0: as we are with Hungary. Uh, You can play it so soft that it doesn't really hurt. All right. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Until next time.